0: This is TanakhCast. Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 78. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 8 through 11 in First Kings and follow with a consideration of sex, scandal, power, and who gets blamed for all of it. Chapter 8 marks the relocation of the Ark of the Covenant from the city of David to the new temple. It's a cause for massive celebration, massive near offerings, so many that, quote, They could not be numbered for their abundance. And when the Kohanim depart, a thick cloud fills the temple, so thick that it envelops the structure in darkness. Shlomo then offers up a very long, deuteronomistically-flavored prayer to God. And when I say deuteronomistically, I mean, you know, reward and punishment. If you're good, you'll get rewarded. If you're bad, you'll be punished. He then follows up with an address similar in tone to the people about following the rules and being good Jews, reward and punishment and all that. At which point Shlomo near offers an additional 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. That's a lot of brisket. The next handful of chapters recount the opulence, grandeur and glory which is Shlomo's reign. He fortifies cities and builds walls and accrues wealth in chapter 9. In chapter 10 the Queen of Sheba arrives to bask in Shlomo's wisdom, which she does a lot. And of course, there's more wealth piling up in Shlomo's treasury from all over the Mediterranean, including chariots and horses. But chapter 11 marks the beginning of Shlomo's inevitable decline, and it is precipitated by his love for women, a lot of women, foreign women, idolatrous women from the nations that God specifically instructed Jewish men to stay away from. And these women the 700 wives and 300 concubines, quote, led his heart astray. Shlomo even goes as far as to erect high places for the gods of his wives, the Sidonian Ashtoret, the Ammonite Milkom, and the Moabite Chemosh. The women burn incense and sacrifice. End quote. The Lord was furious with Shlomo for his heart had gone astray from the Lord God of Israel. This is not good. And so the rest of this chapter is dedicated to Shlomo's undoing. God promises Shlomo that out of respect for David, he will not tear all of the kingdom away from him, but leave his son, only two tribes, to rule. And then there are a few new foreign adversaries who shatter the peace, but again, they're not the real threat to the kingdom. That honor falls to Yeravam ben Nevat, a son of one of Shlomo's servants, an Ephraimite, who is a talented project manager in charge of repairing the walls of Jerusalem. One day, Yeravam, sporting a new cloak, is outside the walls inspecting his work crew's handiwork when he encounters Achiah the Shilonite, a prophet. Achiah grabs Yeravam's coat and rips it into 12 pieces.
1: you ripping my car. Yeah. Hey, bud, what's your problem?
0: Achiyah promises Yeravam that he will rule over 10 of the 12 tribes. But this is one of those presents that, well...
1: Thanks, Obama!
0: Because when Shlomo hears about God's promise coming to fruition, he sends some boys to take care of Yoravim, but Yeravam is already long gone to Egypt, where he will remain until Shlomo dies, which he does, quote, and the rest of the acts of Shlomo and all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Shlomo? And the time that Shlomo reigned in Jerusalem over all of Israel was 40 years, and Shlomo lay with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehavam, his son, reigned in his stead. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. Shlomo, shlomo, how little we knew yo. Well, that rhyme scanned better on paper. How about this? Shlomo, shlomo, how little we knew you, yo. All right. I'm just going to leave that. Perhaps it's just me, but didn't we just meet Shlomo like last episode? And it's not like we didn't garner any insight into the man's character. He could have asked for anything from God when he had that face-to-face, anything at all, and he asked for wisdom. What a wise move. And he could talk to animals, and he was a poet, and a thinker, and a builder, and he built a temple, and a palace, and, and now he's done. And he goes out in such an inauspicious and undignified manner, a man who the author of Kings tells us falls because of his taste for women. A lot of women. Shlomo's taste for women led his heart astray, prompting him to condone what the Tanakh so far reminded us was the worst thing you could possibly do, worship idols. And for this reason, God informs him face to face that the Davidic kingdom over all of Israel is finished. But out of respect for David, It won't end completely. Shlomo will die as a king of Israel, but his son will see 83% of the kingdom taken from him and handed to a usurper. This is the second instance in the Tanakh where a revered figure was undone by his sexual appetite. David was the first. His affair slash rape of Bathsheba and execution of her husband set off a chain of events that resulted in fratricide, two failed coup attempts, and a totally messed up domestic life that surely weighed on David as he sat on the throne. Now it's his son's turn to fall prey to the same temptation. The wily charms of women... In the end, it's all about the Ereva. Erevah means nakedness, and it's really female nakedness. Oh, Tanakh. Such a product of its time. But then again, until fairly recently in human history, it was not only a product of its time, but also a producer as well, in how it produces and perpetuates a profound fear of women. I'm sorry, Wendy, but I just don't trust anything that bleeds for five days and doesn't die. Not since the Book of Numbers has the Tanakh made such a visceral connection between women and idolatry. But as much as the story here is about hearts straying from the right path, it's also about sex and power and scandal. And I cannot help but think about another story about sex and power and scandal, the Monica Lewinsky affair. And this episode's explicit rating is not because of any profanity or such stuff. It's because of the language I will cite from a government document. Yes, I'm referring to that hot piece of 90s pornography, the Star Report. For those of you who are too young to remember the details, I'll let Monica Lewinsky herself tell you how it all began. This comes from her TED Talk entitled The Price of Shame. I'll put the link to the complete talk at thenextjew.com. So here's Monica.
1: At the age of 22... I fell in love with my boss. And at the age of 24, I learned the devastating consequences.
0: Because Monica Lewinsky, that young 22-year-old, was working for none other than the President of the United States, William Jefferson Clinton.
1: In 1998, after having been swept up into an improbable romance, I was then swept up into the eye of a political, legal, and media maelstrom like we had never seen before.
0: And whether this political, legal, and media maelstrom was inspired by partisan rancor or just good old corruption, I guess history will decide. But hey, it's been more than 15 years. Let's have a look and decide for ourselves. Let's start with some basic facts. Bill Clinton, former governor of Arkansas and centrist Democrat, unseated the incumbent George Herbert Walker Bush in 1992 and became America's 42nd president. He was the first Democrat to be president since Carter went down to defeat at the hands of Ronald Reagan in 1980. His first term as president was marked with some policy successes, such as the passing of the Family Medical Leave Act, which required large employers to allow employees to take unpaid leave for pregnancy or serious medical condition. A no-brainer, really, for us folks up here in Canada, but I digress. He also brokered the final stages of the Oslo Accords between Israel and Palestine, but he was also dogged by scandal. There was Travelgate, then Troopergate, Details of which I could go into, but suffice to say that an odd rotten smell began to emanate from the White House. An odor the hounds of the GOP would soon pick up with their sweeping victories in the 1993 midterm elections, which brought both the House and the Senate under Republican control. Even though Clinton won a second term quite handily, the GOP did not get the message that the sitting president was a popular one. But then again, the popular president was also involved in a lot of unseemly activities. And a lot of these unseemly activities came to light in the context of a freewheeling investigation of a failed real estate deal in 1993 dubbed the Whitewater scandal, because I guess White Watergate would have been too confusing. Uh, It involved David Hale, a former Arkansas municipal judge and former Arkansas banker who claimed that as governor of Arkansas, Clinton had pressured him into providing an illegal $300,000 loan to Susan McDougall, the Clinton's partner in the Whitewater land deal. So after receiving the approval of U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno, independent counsel Kenneth Starr of the Starr Report began to dig. And besides Travelgate and the White House's misuse of FBI files, there were other complaints of a more intimate nature. In 1994, a former Arkansas State employee named Paula Jones sued Bill Clinton for sexual harassment. Clinton, of course, denied the allegations. This was, it seems, just the tip of the iceberg. In the course of the investigation, Linda Tripp, a Defense Department worker, came forward with some more evidence for the independent counsel. As Monica Lewinsky would later recount.
1: It is September of 1998. I'm sitting in a windowless office room inside the Office of the Independent Counsel, underneath humming fluorescent lights. I'm listening to the sound of my voice, my voice on surreptitiously taped phone calls that a supposed friend had made the year before. I'm here because I've been legally required to personally authenticate all 20 hours of taped conversation. For the past eight months, the mysterious content of these tapes has hung like the sword of Damocles over my head. I mean, who who can remember what they said a year ago? Scared and mortified, I listen. Listen as I prattle on about the flotsam and jetsam of the day. Listen as I confess my love for the president and, of course, my heartbreak. Listen to my sometimes catty, sometimes churlish, sometimes silly self being cruel, unforgiving, uncouth. Listen deeply, deeply ashamed to the worst version of myself, a self I don't even recognize.
0: So when Clinton was being deposed in the Jones lawsuit, there was a new line of questioning introduced. He was asked about Lewinsky and whether he had had sexual relations with her. The exact question was, and the precise wording is really important, you'll see why in a minute. So the question was, quote, have you ever had sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky as that term is defined in deposition exhibit one? Definition exhibit one was created by the independent counsel's office. Clinton then had an opportunity to review the definition and he responded infamously, quote, I have never had sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky. This line is echoed in his forceful denial at a White House press conference. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Ms. Lewinsky which is not an answer that is beyond the pale when one questions a currently married man about whether he had sex with a woman who was not his wife. But the thing is that the independent counsel, Kenneth Starr, of the Starr Report, had a blue dress of Monica's with Clinton's semen on it. So how could Clinton respond in that fashion? Clinton later explained that since he was not actively involved with Lewinsky's, quote, genitalia, anus, groin, breast, inner thigh, or buttocks, as deposition exhibit one elaborated. See what I mean by the smutty bits? He wasn't engaged in sexual relations. In other words, performing oral sex was sexual relations, while, but receiving it was not. Got it? Well, Kenneth Starr didn't get it, and he concluded that the president's sworn testimony was false and perjurious. And that was grounds for impeachment. The trial in the United States Senate began right after the seating of the 106th Congress, in which the Republicans began with 55 senators. A two-thirds vote of 67 was required to remove Clinton from office. 50 senators voted to remove Clinton on the obstruction of justice charge, and 45 voted to remove him on the perjury charge. No Democrat voted guilty on either charge. Even though the Senate failed to convict, Clinton was held in contempt of court. His license to practice law in Arkansas was suspended for five years, and its suspension was reaffirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court. He was also fined $90,000 for giving false testimony. Clinton didn't appeal this civil contempt of court ruling, but to this day, if you catch up with him on his wife's campaign trail, he'll surely still maintain that his testimony complied with the definition of sexual relations. Shlomo never denied having sex with that woman, or that one, or that one, or that one, or the 996 others that were carnally affiliated with him. It was his prerogative as a man and as a king to have sex with his wives and his concubines. And he even comments about this arrangement later in Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, when he says in chapter 7, quote, Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things, while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes." I particularly like the line where he says, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. The thousand he's referring to are his wives and his concubines, among which he could not find one upright woman. Nice. Clinton, like Shlomo, was regarded as a standard bearer of our values. In the 1990s, legions of feminists lined up to support the president. After all, he was pro-choice. He signed into law the Family and Medical Leave Act, which had been vetoed twice by Republican presidents. He favored affirmative action, which benefits women more than any other ethnic group in the country. He made child care a policy priority. Clinton appointed 10 of the 21 women who have served in cabinet-level positions, including the first woman ever to be Secretary of State or Attorney General. And he also appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court. And especially after the congressional elections of 1994, feminists and women's groups saw Clinton as all they had standing between them and Newt Gingrich. And also like Shlomo, everyone was perfectly comfortable blaming the woman or women for what happened. The Tanakh would never contemplate defending a Sidonian or Moabite woman and their repugnant idolatrous practices. But what is remarkable, even 15-plus years later, is that very few feminists came rushing to Monica Lewinsky's defense. In fact, even some feminists piled on. Erica Jong cattily observed that, quote, my dental hygienist pointed out that she had third-stage gum disease. Susan Faludi, author of Backlash, said, quote, if anything, it sounds like she put the moves on him. Betty Friedan claimed that Clinton's, quote, enemies are attempting to bring him down through allegations about some dalliance with an intern. Whether it's a fantasy, a setup, or true, I simply don't care. We'll come back to this point very shortly. Clinton, like Shlomo, also completed his term in office despite all the sex and all the scandals, and his post-presidential period was even more resplendent in praise and honor. In 2014, 18% of respondents in a Quinnipiac University Polling Institute poll of American voters regarded Clinton as the best president since World War II, making him the third most popular among post-war presidents behind John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. A 2015 poll by the Washington Post asked 162 scholars of the American Political Science Association to rank all the US presidents in order of greatness. According to their findings, Clinton ranked eighth overall with a rating of 70%. And as much as David is regarded as the archetypal king, Shlomo is regarded, well, as like the best king ever. The rabbinic literature on him is
1: Legend, wait for it, dairy.
0: And if you do a review of the rabbinic literature, It reads like a shopping list of weird interactions and moments of grace mixed in with oddities of nature and supernature. The Encyclopedia Judaica has one such list, but so does the index of Bialik and Ravnitsky's Sefer Ha'agadah, or Book of Legends. Here is a brief sample from the Encyclopedia Judaica. Here we go. Uh, Solomon chose wisdom, knowing that once he possessed it, all else would come of itself. Shlomo's 800 proverbs are equal to 3,000, since each verse in his book may be interpreted in two or three different ways. He was an expert horticulturist, and he succeeded in growing all types of foreign plants in Eretz Yisrael. He understood the language of the beasts and birds, and they submitted to his judgment. Uh, The two women who claimed the child were really spirits who were sent by God to reveal Shlomo's wisdom. All doubt about the fairness of his verdict was dispelled when a heavenly voice proclaimed, "'This is the mother of the child.'" Ooh, cool. Shlomo also ruled wisely in the case of the slave who claimed he was the master's son, the double-headed son who claimed a double inheritance, and the three men who could not find the money they hid before the commencement of the Shabbat. Man, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that double-headed son case. But that last one sounds kind of like an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And then there's this one. The Queen of Sheba came to seek his advice and asked numerous riddles of Shlomo, all of which he answered promptly and correctly. And since we're talking about women, when Shlomo married the daughter of Pharaoh, she spread over his bed a tapestry studded with diamonds and pearls, which gleamed like constellations in the sky, and created an illusion of stars. Shlomo slept on until the fourth hour of the morning, causing deep sorrow among the people, since the daily sacrifice could not be offered, because the temple keys lay under Shlomo's pillow. Madam,
1: I need you to remain calm, and trust me, I'm a professional, but beneath this pillow. The key to my release.
0: I just love that image of Shlomo sleeping in and the keys to the temple being under his pillow and then no one could get the temple open without him. Amazing. But despite all of these shenanigans with a thousand women which led to the kingdom's ultimate demise, Shlomo, like Clinton, is still revered. He's the Teflon king. While Monica and Shlomo's wives, not so nonstick. Which only goes to demonstrate another one of Shlomo's dictums from Kohelet, again, chapter 1. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new indeed. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out Tanakhcast or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 79, when we continue the first Book of Kings with chapters 12 through 15.